Finally, the Lamb scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded and they get trampled down by the nations. Now some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. And once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7, and the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors, and the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the Lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the Lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. We have three readings from Revelation for you this morning. Lots of fun. Um, the first is in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all, by the second death. The second reading is all of Revelation chapter 11. You're welcome. Buckle up. It's a lot. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. 
If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed, and the third woe is coming soon. And finally, Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. My friends, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. My friends, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I always wonder when I start reading from Revelation, I wonder what people who are visiting us for the first time think is about to happen. Um, of course, we're, we're preaching on it because if you're following along on our Bible reading plan, that's what you're reading. If not, I think we'll, we'll start this week, actually. We start reading through it. And Lord knows if I'm going to make you read through Revelation, I ought to spend some time talking about it. Um, but, but in addition to that, there is a real connection between what you read in the book of Revelation and what that book has to teach us and what we celebrate on Christmas morning. And I know that there are some parts of Revelation, most parts maybe even, uh, including all of the parts we read this morning, that are really hard to understand and figure out and interpret. Uh, and, and it gets muddled and made more difficult by the fact that there are a lot of people out there who insist on trying to interpret all of this metaphorical imagery and symbolism as like real, literal symbols. Actual descriptions of what's literally going on. But we have to remember always that Revelation is a book that fundamentally uses imagery and symbolism to reveal or to describe hidden truths. 
It's not a book that describes things as they literally are. And that does make it difficult to read. So I wonder, when you were little, or maybe for some of you who are a bit older, uh, have you ever had, like, a, in the month leading up to Christmas, a moment where you went to the tree, maybe when everyone else wasn't looking, and, like, you picked up your gift and, like, weighed it a little bit to see, and maybe give it, like, a little bit of a shake to see what's going on in the box, and you're trying to figure out what's in there, right? Um, yeah, you've all done it. If you're saying no, I don't believe you. <laughs> if you don't do it now, you did it when you were a kid. Um, and, and sometimes, right, you, you know exactly what's in there. You, you figure it out like that. But there are times, right, where you, you cannot figure out what's in the box. It's a total mystery. And maybe one of those times you did that, you, you actually went down on Christmas morning and you opened it up and you, when you finally unwrapped it, you were not just totally surprised by what was in there. What you found was actually better than any of the things you guessed it was. I'm going to be honest, that never happened to me. Um, <laughs> I was always a little disappointed. Uh, <laughs> my wife tells me that I'm foolishly optimistic about things, and um, my whole family is. So when I can't guess at all what the present is, I almost always tended to imagine it like something far better than what anyone would actually buy me. Um, so <laughs> I've ended up with more than one year where I couldn't figure out what the presents under the tree were, and then I was disappointed when I unwrapped them, even though they're the exact thing I wanted, right? Because I kept building it up in my head like an idiot. And you've all done it, don't even. Now, luckily, it does not happen to me as much now that I'm an adult. Um, and it's not just because people just gave up and started buying me gift cards. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I can still remember a lot of those times when I was younger when, when I opened those presents on Christmas morning and I found exactly the things that I had been hoping for. Right? The, the exact thing I wanted. One year, what I really wanted was an iPod. So this was back in the olden days when we all got excited about a device that did nothing but play music and, and required a, a, a wired headphone connection, right? And went uphill to school both ways. <laughs> One of the kids in the first service, when I said that, leaned over to her mom and asked, Mom, what's an iPod? And I got... <laughs> I felt really old. Um, so, so that year, uh, Christmas was on a Sunday morning, just like this year, except my dad's not as nice as me and made us go to church on Sunday morning. And... Um, but what they did is they, they let us open our stockings before we went to church, and, and then we would save the wrap presents for, for later. So I opened my stocking, and, and the things that came out, um, one was like a nice set of earbuds, and then an, an iTunes gift card, and an iPod case, and that was it. <laughs> so then I had to go to church on Sunday morning, <laughs> sitting there, knowing perfectly well <laughs> That, that, that the iPod I've been hoping for was under that tree waiting for me when I got home. Because my parents are cruel, cruel people. <laughs> you know, ma material gifts, the physical things we want, there'll always be a bit of a mixed bag, right? I mean, there, there, there will always be some disappointments and there will be some surprises. And, and very often, you might get exactly what you hope for, but it's extremely rare that you'll actually get something even better than what you hoped for. It's rare you'll find something that that is better than anything you could actually have dreamed you'd get. And it's with that in mind, we're going to go back into Revelation. So this first bit from chapter 2, is, it's, it's the letter to the church in Smyrna. And Smyrna is a city, it's in modern-day Turkey, um, just like the city of Ephesus. And in fact, those two cities kind of competed with each other for prestige and wealth and, and, and everything else a city can compete for another one with. Um, 
And it was actually one of the first cities in the Roman Empire to begin the practice of worshiping Caesar as a god. And, and that particular religion, it's called the imperial cult, and that particular religion, out, out of all the, the, the various religions of the ancient world, was by far the most hostile toward Christianity. Um, because each one was making the exact same claim about their god. They even used the same terms. They called Caesar the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Son of God. All the exact same language. So, in cities where that religion was popular, those, those became especially hostile places for Christians to be because the followers of that religion didn't just see the Christians as heretics or blasphemers. They saw them as an existential threat to the existence of the Roman Empire. So it's, it's clear the church in Smyrna is undergoing extreme suffering and, and persecution. And Jesus makes a reference to their, their poverty, but the word he uses for the poverty is, is really extreme because there's two different Greek words you can use that describe poverty. And, and one of them just refers to someone who, who doesn't own anything superfluous. Right? They don't have anything that, that is not absolutely necessary. They have probably a place to live. It might be a very, very small, cramped place to live, but they've got a place to live. They probably have at least some, one or two sets of clothing. They can feed themselves fairly regularly. They're living what we would call paycheck to paycheck. They're, they're, they're very insecure in, in their lifestyle, and, and a disaster could ruin it all in a moment. But for now, they've got what they need. And that's what we would think of when we think of poverty. But the word that Jesus uses here, it actually describes someone who has nothing at all. Someone who... who does not have a house to live in, or if they do, they, they're about to lose it. I mean, I mean, the, the best actual reference would be you're talking about someone who's literally homeless or constantly on the verge of being homeless. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. They don't have a steady income. They probably rely on, on begging to get by. This is the kind of poverty that the church in Smyrna is living in. They cannot be more poor than they are. Yet he calls them rich. Because true riches are not related to material wealth. And even though they face unimaginable suffering, they're brave. Though they have no money, no possessions, they're rich. They may face physical death and they will have eternal life. True death is not a problem for them. And this is the first part of what it means to be a follower of the Lamb. To be a, a Christian. We have to recognize that our core values are different. We can be rich despite material poverty. We can be joyful despite temporal suffering. And we don't need to fear death because we know it is merely temporary. And it is really difficult to overstate just how radical and powerful those values are. Fear of poverty and suffering are two of the easiest and most consistent ways to manipulate someone into compromising their values and forsaking their beliefs. And you all should know this because you experience this every election cycle, don't you? This is what every politician plays on. Republican, Democrat, they all do it in different ways and maybe often in subtle ways, but they're all playing on the fear that if the other guy wins, we might end up in poverty. We might lose what we have. We might end up suffering more than we would like. And it's used to manipulate you every time. 
and death, death is the final, the ultimate weapon of the tyrant. Someone who claims the power of life and death over you. They have complete control. And that's been the case throughout human history. Every tyrant has done the same thing. Death is the ultimate weapon. And Jesus takes it away from them. Death can't be used against the Christians in Smyrna because they know it's not permanent. They know it's not even, in a sense, real. This is radical. It's world-changing. When Christians really embrace these beliefs, when they really live as if these things are true, it is impossible to control them or manipulate them or intimidate them. And so we move to chapter 11, and, and this chapter is just plain weird. Right? There's no getting around it. It's weird. It's hard to interpret. And, and first off, we have to recall, it's entirely symbolic. There are plenty of people who would like to make this a very literal story of what's going to happen in the future, but it's entirely symbolic. We know that lampstands symbolize churches, and you might recall from, from the earliest chapter of the book, there's seven churches named, only two of them are held blameless. And so there's, in some sense, where this idea of two witnesses is not just the church, but particularly the church that remains faithful in the face of persecution and suffering and difficulty. But there's another thing going on here, because if you way, way back in Deuteronomy, there's a law set up by God that, that in any court case, you need two witnesses. And two witnesses are sufficient to establish the truth. So the underlying message is that no matter what is going on around the church, even if it seems like the world is falling apart, even if it seems like, like there is no one there to help, and, and if the church is all alone, what God is saying is actually you have been given everything that you need to fulfill your calling. And it references this great city, but it doesn't refer to any specific place. Again, it's not literal. It's this reference to the, just the, the idea of humanity organized in opposition to God. The world standing against heaven. And so this whole chapter describes the role of the church. We're to witness to God and to his kingdom and to call the world to repentance. And in doing that, we're going to invite opposition. The world will stand against us. And that's not a prediction of the future. It is telling you what's going to happen right now and what's been happening for 2,000 years. The world will stand against us. We may even face great danger. Our calling as the church is hard, but our triumph is assured. And the book will use this militaristic language of triumph and victory and conquest. And, and again, it's symbolic because it's not actually about like a battlefield victory or destroying the unbelievers. It's not about smiting the unbelievers so God wins. Actually, the only one who loses in the defeat is the beast. And, and the beast sort of simultaneously represents, for them, literally the Roman Empire, but, but also all the empires of this world who would, who would stand in opposition to what God is doing all the people who would compete with God's claim for sovereignty over his world. And in that sense, it's representative of Satan. That's the only one who loses. Victory for us is a defeat for evil, for the empires of this world who set themselves up in opposition to God, not for the rest of the world. Our victory is salvation for the world. 
That's why the church is supposed to call the nations to repentance. Our job isn't to go call fire from heaven down upon our enemies, but to invite them to come and see Jesus for who he really is. All the imagery in Revelation about conquering is tied to sacrifice and love, not violence and wrath. And underlying all of this is the notion that a a comfortable, easy-minded church is a powerless church. A church that is willing to live in discomfort, that's willing to speak truth to power, that's willing to lay down our lives even for our enemies, that is a church that will conquer the world. And so finally we come to chapter 20. And again, it's a purely symbolic chapter that a lot of people really, really want to try and take literally as an actual prediction of the future, but you can't really, it doesn't work that way. What John is doing in that chapter is he's giving his original readers a behind-the-scenes look at their present reality. For them, looking in the world they lived in, it looked like evil was winning. Christians were being put to death right and left. It looked like Rome had won, like Satan was rampant. But a quick peek behind the scenes reveals that Satan is bound. The martyrs still live, which is what the first resurrection language is about, that they actually have not died. They're alive in Christ. And God has already triumphed over evil. And it's this truth, even though it's hidden, that is meant to give the followers of Jesus hope in their God, no matter their present circumstances. The martyrs may seem to have been defeated, but in reality, they are alive in Christ and they are already triumphant. And so a central theme in all of these passages is the idea that following Jesus leads to conflict with the world. Now the severity of the conflict may vary, but it will always be there. The gospel challenges the world, and it stands in direct opposition to the world's most dearly held values. In fact, we ought to be a little concerned if we don't face any kind of opposition. If nobody's worried about us, if nobody's bothered by what we believe or what we teach or what we say, we've almost certainly got it wrong. And you don't have to look that far back in history to see how this has happened time and time again. Look what happens throughout the history of the Western world when the church becomes just as powerful as the government and nobody challenges what the government is doing or what the church is doing. When no one's offended by what the church says, it gets it wrong. It doesn't mean, by the way, that we're supposed to be like intentionally offensive to people or that we should revel in making people upset or offended or you know, insult them or, or, or just walk up to someone on Sunday morning and say, you're a sinner. Um, I can do that, you can't. <laughs> All it means is the truths of the gospel run counter to the world's values. And in serious ways, they run counter often to our political values. And everyone, conservative or liberal, should be bothered by Christians because we should be challenging them all at every turn. We don't belong to any political tribe. We belong to Jesus. We are not defined by the fact that we are Republicans or Democrats. We're not defined by the fact that we're American. God help me, we're not defined by the fact that we're Texans. 
It's not that those are bad things, by the way. We can be those things. We can be proud to be an American. I know you're all proud to be a Texan. I am too. I was born and raised, right? We can be proud of those things. It's okay. It's about prioritizing. Our identity is first and foremost that we belong to Jesus. And see that, that is deeply disturbing to the world. Our allegiance is to God above everyone else. And it can't be bought even at gunpoint. And there are places in the world where that's exactly what people are trying to do. We're very fortunate here. No one's going to hold us at gunpoint and demand we reject our faith. As I said, the, the conflict will vary in its severity depending on where you are in the world and when you are alive. It may not be a very severe conflict, but it should always be there. We should always be pushing back against what the world says is right. It will look different in every generation, in every nation. But we should always be pushing back, holding up the gospel as the central truth. And the thing is, we would rather live a comfortable, happy, and safe life. We would much rather be, be guided by our own hearts, or our own pleasures that we want to seek, and our own desires. And the thing is, if we give in to that temptation, what we'll find is all those things are fleeting at best. We might get what we want only to find out that we then need more of it. Most of us probably have learned at a certain point in our lives that if you are not satisfied with the money you have now, you will never be satisfied with the money you have, no matter how much of it you get. If you have money problems now, you'll have the same problems if you get more. Why? Because if you get more, your spending goes up to match your new income. Time and time again, that's what happens. We get the thing we think we're seeking and we find out that we actually just need more and more of it. It works just like drugs. What Jesus offers us is far, far better than anything our own hearts could lead to us. And by the way, the year that I got that iPod, you know what I asked for the next Christmas? Bigger iPod. <laughs> and I got it too. <laughs> what Jesus offers us is far better than any of the pleasures that we might chase after, precisely because all the good things of this world are merely shadows and foretastes of the good that is to come. And this is an important thing to remember. It means you can enjoy the good things of this world, but you can enjoy them precisely because you know, you know that they are a foretaste of the good that is to come. They will never satisfy you the way that the real thing will. But we can celebrate that they're good. And it's precisely that knowledge, knowledge that, that even the greatest pleasures and joys of this world will pale in comparison with the good that is to come. Knowledge that any sacrifices we make here and now, up to and including our lives, are only temporary sacrifices. That should fill us with unshakable hope and joy in our Savior. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. That life is eternal. We're called to be God's witnesses in the world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and inviting the whole world to abandon their pursuit of fleeting worldly goods and come to Jesus. 
and that will put us into conflict with the world we live in. It will make us unpopular. For many Christians around the world, it will make them a threat to the government or to the dominant culture. And people still do die for this every day. You and I are so lucky. Because the worst that will happen to us is we'll be unpopular. We'll be the annoying person. Some of us already are. But whatever difficulties we suffer, they're nothing. Any setbacks are an illusion. We've already triumphed because we follow Jesus. We already have a share in the eternal life. And see, that is what John is revealing to his readers. That's the wrapping paper he's ripping off the gift. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's a gift that only appears disappointing because it only appears to demand a lot from you. It only appears to be harsh. But in reality, it's far better than anything we could ever dream of. It appears at first to ask you to give up things that you might want to pursue, that you might think are your goal in life, that you might think are the greatest pleasures and joys you could know. But what it gives you in return is unimaginably better. Because when we truly become like Christ, when we live these lives of of sacrificial, selfless love, it doesn't just bless us. That's what brings the whole world to the repentance and to the love of God. We have to live in such a way that people see Jesus in us. And the best way to do that is to spend our lives adoring the Lamb and trying to be like He was. Jesus was not comfortable. He was not easygoing or carefree. He was never afraid to speak truth to power. He was never afraid to challenge people who were living in sin and to call them to repentance. Although, crucially, you'll always note in the Gospels, when he calls someone a sinner, he then offers them grace. When they bring the woman before him to to stone her to death for adultery, he forgives her and then tells her, go and sin no more. Grace and truth combined. And even when it made him their enemy... He was never afraid to call someone out for the way they lived if it was sinful. He went willingly to his death, sacrificing himself for his enemies. Even as he was being nailed to the cross, he cried out to God to forgive the men who were driving the nails home. And it's when the church will imitate him in that way of life that we will conquer in the name of the Lamb. This is our vision for the future. Following Jesus is about loving people, even our enemies, even when it costs us everything to do so. That's how we win. That's how we show people Jesus. So the birth of Christ that we celebrate on Christmas morning is a lot like that iPod case I found in a stocking years ago. It's, it's a gift, it's a wonderful gift, but it's not the whole gift. But it tells you what the real thing is. It points to the real gift that is to come. And it creates in you anticipation and joy and excitement for the thing that's coming. And because we know exactly what that gift is, we have cause to celebrate, to be joyful, to be hopeful. And the thing is, that gift is better than we could ever dream of. Even though we know what it is, we we really can't truly comprehend it. That's why in Revelation, John has to rely on all this symbolism and imagery because the things he's trying to communicate, what he's trying to describe, we can't wrap our minds around it. 
We can't comprehend it. But we can anticipate it. And you know, this is a time of year that is so difficult for so many people. Some of you are are getting ready to celebrate Christmas for the first time without someone you love. For some of you, it's the 10th time you've done it, and you might have noticed it hasn't actually gotten any easier. But we can have hope and joy and peace, even in the midst of darkness. Because we know that our loved ones who've gone on before are alive in Christ. We know what is coming. We've seen through the veil. We know that God wins. We know that evil is brought to justice. We know that death is defeated. Thanks be to God.